Dear Father, we do thank you for the start of a new series. We thank you for that, that word grace. And uh, even though it's maybe overused, Lord, we just pray that in the coming weeks we might reflect on what that means, that you would speak to us here and now, as you promise, that you meet with us and that you would open our hearts, Lord, to help us see what you've done, what you've done to transform our lives. We pray this in your power. Amen. Uh, if you're new here, you may not know, but I think everybody else knows. Uh, Kim and I went on holidays earlier this year for six weeks or so. Did I say six weeks? I said six weeks on a road trip. So I just thought I'd take the opportunity to do a bit of tormenting. We, we visited a couple of churches and I just want to introduce them to you. This is a church at Nullumboy. Nullumboy is up near Darwin, except on the eastern side, not the western side, right up on the beach there. We which went there, we had, we had a couple of Sundays with them. Um, I was able to, to preach the, with them. They're a church without a minister. Nullumboy is not a very big town at all. It's a mining town. And often they do things together as a church. This is Sunday night. They said, hey, a few of us are coming down to the beach. What would you, else would you do if you live in a place like that? Have beach, uh, like a church gathering on the beach. It was really cool to hang out with them. Uh, so I come, Baptist Church, I come up there as a Prezi minister, they welcome me, I sent greetings from our church to them to encourage them what was going on here. They wanted to make sure I passed on the message, send their greetings on to you. Um, and they were very encouraged about hearing stories, what's going on here. We also visited another church um, just after we got back. We spoke at a ch- I spoke at a church camp for the Armadale Anglican Church um, down the coast. Uh, this is their church. We actually went to their camp on a campsite. But again, uh, we were able to encourage them. They were able to accept me as a Presbyterian. I walked in there. I didn't know what was happening because they said, oh, here we'll have the youth guy, we'll have the priest, we'll have deacons, we'll have the dean, and we'll also have the bishop. And I'm like, are we going for a game of poker or what are we doing here? <laughs> so as a Prezi minister, they even accepted me. Um, but I sent them their, our greetings, uh, encouraged them, what God was doing here. They also wanted me to make sure I passed on their thanks for letting me go down there for the weekend. Um, and yeah, to, to encourage you guys that, um, yeah, the, the, the message sounds, uh, it was encouraging to them. But it's interesting to notice, going to different churches, I'm not sure whether you've found this, it, it, you start to open up and look around and go, what shapes this church? What is it about this church that makes it what it is? So at Nullumboy, it's one of the remotest places in Australia. 650 kilometres of dirt road to get to the highway before you get to the nearest town. Like, it's really remote. So what shapes it, it's very evident, the mine. It's a mining town, Rio Tinto. It's a mining town. If the mining loses jobs, the church loses people. The remoteness, they can't get a minister there. Uh, so they rely on lots of other resources coming in. It's shaped by their remoteness. For the Anglican church, you might have guessed... Uh, what shapes them a lot is their history and heritage. All the, the hierarchy and stuff, there's pecking order that goes on in their system. But it limits them on the way they can think and the way they can move forward because they're sort of anchored in a 200-year time slot in the past. And you can see that. that there's a bit of frustration in the way they're working uh, towards trying to get things to move forward. But there's lots of ways churches are shaped by different things. Uh, Often churches are shaped, as I said, their history, their past. They can be shaped by their religious uh, traditions and what they do, the culture of that church. Uh, They can be shaped by the music and energy. They want that to shape what they do. 
Also, the preaching of the word and their beliefs shapes what they do. You go to these churches and you can see it's evidence. They're shaped by a particular thing. Now, I wonder, thinking through my visiting a few other churches, and I'm sure you know, if you've had the opportunity to visit other churches uh, or even our church, what people think of when they come into our church. When they come in here, what shapes us? You, know, you come in here and enjoy some uh, hopefully amazing music. Uh, they hear the word preached. Hopefully they'll go into the cube area, have some morning tea. I'm sure they're going to be amazed with the coffee. So Ben tells us. Um, but they hopefully meet a few people. On the way to the car, they're going to say to themselves, wow, I can tell that church was shaped by what? What would characterise us? What, what are we shaped by? When we're starting this letter in Ephesians, it becomes evident, only in a few verses, that grace is to shape everything we do. In fact, Paul's writing this letter. It's called Ephesians because it's um, written to the church at Ephesus, but it's actually a letter that's circulated everywhere. They've found copies with different names on it to say, oh, look, it was written to Ephesus, but we'll just change the name to the next town and pass on a next copy to encourage them. So it's more of a general church to encourage lots of churches of how to be shaped by grace because in their time, you've got to think, first century Roman Empire, there's lots of things that are shaping the churches of the day. Church is still a pretty new idea for them. And you've got uh, things going on in the Roman Empire, like the temple worship. So, you know, how does uh, the church sort of equate to the temple, or do they cross over? There's this idea of pluralism. Can you have one, because the Roman gods, it's okay. You can have one uh, to help prosperity, one to help good luck, or your family, or, or whatever. Just add another god. So is the church just another temple or another god you can add to your list? Also, church is a good place to hang out for them. Uh, you can go to be somebody. Yeah, there's a pecking order. There's cliques inside of church. Yeah, you, you congregate to the, the closest people that are like you. You don't hang out with the slaves or the lower class. You want to be in the upper class. You hang out with those people. A sense of individualism, that it is all about me and it is all about my standing before others. So why would I go and help other people? Because they should be helping me. There's all these things going on. So Paul spends lots of time explaining grace. In fact, half the book is all about grace. And then the other half is about, from chapter 4 onwards, is about how that changes our lives. But what we'll go on to see, and I encourage you to read it this week to get a bit of a head start on where we're going with this. But what we'll see is there's lots of application for how we do church. He talks about music. He talks about uh, preaching the word talks about loving each other, serving each other, you know, getting rosters or serving teams, a lot of things like that. It also shapes what we do outside of church, at home. At home, he talks about families, dads and children. He talks about marriages for husbands and wives. He even talks about the workplace, what you do at the workplace. He even talks about the jokes you should laugh at. He doesn't say don't laugh at jokes. Just there's certain jokes think about because we're trained by grace. It's all in light of what God has done for us. It's lots of application, but it means nothing. In fact, it becomes a to-do list unless you understand this idea of grace, God's grace, God's gift poured out for us. I should say, when we say grace, we're not talking about the thing you might say before your meal. We're not talking about uh, the person named grace that they shape us, or our children to be named grace. Uh, not even talked about just teaching grace. It's actually living grace. How do you live it out? How do you live in light of what God has done for you? 
This idea of his grace poured out upon us. What if I ask you the same question? We've talked about church. How does church reflect God's grace? But how are we shaped by grace as individuals? How am I shaped? Or if I ask you the question, how are you shaped? What shapes you? Because I think in uh, in a room like this, we'd have a number of different answers. For some of us, we'd say, my ambition shapes me. I want to be this sort of person, whether it's a business person, a family person, a particular kind of person. I'm ambitious for that. I want to be that person. Other times, uh, other things might shape us, whether it's uh, morals, things we've been taught up with. My parents told me that I should treat others the way I want to be treated myself. That's my rule I live by, and that shapes who I am. For another section of people in in our church, uh, it can be a negative experience. We're, We're shaped by negative things that have happened in our life, whether it's abuse, whether it's been physical abuse or emotional abuse. Uh, whether it's stuff that's going on, gone on with our childhood that we're still trying to work through, that sh- shapes us for years and years and years. Whether it's addictions, that shapes us. We can't get rid of it. We still come back to, to this addictive nature that we've got. So there's lots of things that can shape us. But Paul says, I want you to sit down and think, of this, think about this. Consider this. What has God done for you in pouring out his love for you, showing you his amazing grace? That's going to change your life. That's going to change your life. It's actually going to turn you into the person that God has called you to be, using the language uh, that he does. It's going to turn you into the person that, that God has planned, that God planned for you, when we understand his grace, using the language that he uses. He says, but first, we need to understand it's amazing grace. It's amazing grace when we stop and have a look at it. If you're using the talk outlines, if you're taking any notes, I've actually changed the outline, uh, just working off three headings, that we need to be amazed, we need to be still, and we need to be long. See what I did there? Be still, be, be long. This is what grace does to us. First, we need to be amazed. We need to be amazed at what God's grace is all about. Half his letter, as I said, written about it. Because the temptation in this first bit is to go straight to, oh, look, we saw the heading, um, spiritual blessings, um, that we've got all the spiritual blessings in Christ. What's in it for me? How does this shape me? Uh, What does that do for me? And it's easy to, to be distracted by that or go straight to that application point. But rather, when you look through it, see what God is doing here. And when we say God, Paul's very clear in going, you know, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's three um, persons in the Trinity, three persons we call God, but they're one. They work together. See what the Father does. I'm not sure if you noticed uh, in the passage, as we're reading, uh, as these names were brought up, where it says, God the Father, uh, for he chose us, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. So he's choosing us in love. He chooses us to be adopted into sonship. The father chooses us to make us his children, to bring us into the family. It's the son, so it's in Christ, he goes on to say, that makes it possible. He's the one that redeems us. He's the one that goes out and gets us and brings us into the family. Down in verse 13, it talks about how the Holy Spirit is given to us when we believe. The Holy Spirit is a sign, of a seal of the inheritance that we're going to get, that only children get the inheritance. We're a part of the family. It's Father, Son, and Spirit are all at work in this 
for us to change us. Now, do you know what's not there? If you look at the closer of the passage, it's about God doing this. God chose us. The Son reaches out for us. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. What's not there is what you need to do or what you've done to deserve it. What's in there? Saying, what makes you think that you deserve to be a child of God? You need to do this. It's not there. Or because you're a good person and you've done this, you're in the family. It's not there. There's nothing about what you've done to get it, to be included. In fact, God tells us to do nothing. We're forced to sit back. We're forced to sit and watch God at work and be amazed. Be amazed at how God works. And that is how God works. He doesn't want anybody else to share his glory. He says, I want to show you how powerful I am, how loving I am, how compassionate I am. I'm going to pour that out and I'm not going to let anybody else take that away from me. It's my privilege, my honour, I'm going to do it. So often he says in scripture, if you've read parts of the Old Testament, he tells his people, just be still. Be still. Be still and I'll show you. I'll show you what's going on. One of the amazing times, because blowing away every time I read it, because if you see the kids' stories, uh, it kind of makes it sound like a kid's story, but it's part of the life of Israel. Israel are God's people, his chosen people. Uh, they were enslaved by the Pharaoh in Egypt, and God wanted to make them to be a people, to prosper and bring them into the promised land where he could uh, be with them and bless them. So for Israel... There was a problem. See, God had saved them from the slavery. They'd left Egypt. Uh, they'd got to the Red Sea, promised lands a bit further up the road on the other side of the sea. Uh, they'd just got to work out how to get around it. No dramas. We've got time. Except now they find out that the Pharaoh's changed his mind and he doesn't want to let them go. In fact, he wants to kill them. He'd rather have them dead than to escape. So Pharaoh's got his chariots, got his army, uh, they're coming after him. So the people are starting to get a bit worried. They've heard about what's going on. They've heard uh, the news that the Pharaoh is coming. And you can imagine that, uh, you know, what are the possibilities we're going to get out of this? Moses hops up and he tells them, uh, this is in Exodus, he says, Do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. I, uh, the deliverance of the Lord that he will bring you today the lord will fight for you you need only be still it's like you hear this amazing speech it's a little bit like those speeches just before a big football game or something like we've got this god's in control all you need to do is stick to the plan you be still god's going to do it all happy days but in the background you're hearing the rumbling of the horses and the chariots and the men you see the dust starting to come up from the desert off in a distance. What are you going to do? There's a lot at stake here as you look around, as your friends, your family. Everybody's there. There's a lot at stake. What are you going to do? Because it looks like the time where you are literally going to meet God. You're going to meet your maker as a pharaoh comes in and wipes you out. Because you've got no chance. Do you start praying? Do you start telling your family you love them? Do you start... You know, finding religion and start praying to God that, that, you know, maybe there is life after death. But God comes on the scene uh, and shows Moses 
to separate the water. Tells him, you know, lift up your staff, separates the water, and he says, now Israel can cross the water on dry ground. They can go on dry ground. And they see it happening before them. But then God says this. He says, as Israel's about to cross the water, he says, I'll harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. See who's in control here. God says, I'm going to harden their hearts. They'll go in after you guys. I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Pharaoh thought he was gaining glory. I'm going to take my best chariots, wipe them out. But God says, no, I'm going to be glorified through them. In verse 18, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through the Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God wants to be clear, who's the hero of this rescue plan? Because the people walk through, they get safely on the other side. The Pharaoh and all his men go into the water and the water comes in. They drown them all. It's very clear who's the hero in this story. It's not Moses, not any of his men, or any Israel. It's God's the hero. God does it all. In fact, he tells his people, you just watch on. They might be scared of, for their lives, but you just watch me. Watch my power. Watch my grace upon you. You're my chosen people and I'll love you and I'll do anything for you. Just watch me. I'll even destroy Pharaoh and his chariots. You'd be amazed. Amazed at the power of God. But you can see, God wants the glory. God shows his glory, demonstrates his glory. God's in total control. He is the hero. You guys be still. In fact, when Israel weren't still, they usually muck things up. So he's telling them, be still. I've got this. And he did it. Imagine surviving that, seeing it with your very eyes. This is not a kid's story. For those people crossing the water, seeing all this happen right before them, they thought they were going to die. Now they're on the right side of the river. Pharaoh's long gone. They're closer to the promised land. Can you imagine telling your kids, I can tell you the power of God because I was there, I saw it. And those kids telling their kids, as they entered the promised land, God says, remember who I am. And God introduces himself in the Old Testament after that time. I'm the God. I'm the one who saved you out of Egypt. They go, remember what I did. Remember I've got all power, all compassion on you. And I did everything for you. You just had to be still. I did it all. I'm the God who saved you out of Egypt, who brought you out of Egypt. I did it. The excitement from generation, generation. Dad was there. Granddad was there. They all saw it. It's true. And there's no questioning who deserved the credit. So for generations, they talked about it. Be amazed. Be amazed at what God does, whether it's through stories in the Old Testament. But be amazed, because all those stories in the Old Testament are pointing to something much greater. We're meant to be amazed at all the, the, the things that happen in the Old Testament. It's so amazing that they think they're made up. But it's written historically. But we get to Jesus coming. That's where we're really amazed. Because God's going to send his son for another rescue plan. See, when we're told the Father has given us every spiritual blessing, this is bigger, bigger than even the things uh, that happened at the Red Sea. He goes on to say, uh, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. Do you feel holy and blameless? In love, he predestined us for adoption to, the, to sonship through Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. 
What he's saying here is we're a part of the family. And it's good to be a part of the family because we've got this special connection with God the Father. And it's good having God like that. You can talk to God the Father. I think we get very uh, lazy and take for granted our prayer life that we can. We've got access to God the Father because he's our Father. We've got a father who loves to protect us, like all good dads should, to protect their children. He wants to protect us. He wants to look out for us. He wants the best for us. But we've got the father, the God of creation, as our father, who we can go to. Down in verse 13, the inheritance he gives to us through the Holy Spirit. He just gives us, he makes us a part of the family. There are benefits to being part of this family. But we need to realise we are so far from there without it the work of God we don't deserve it not one little bit it talks there like oh it's it's a matter of fact which it is because of the work of God but do we deserve it do we really belong there who who does belong in 1 John later on in the New Testament 1 John chapter 3 verse 10 they're talking about who is in the family and who's not have a listen are you in the family He says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. If you're a parent and one of your your children, you go, I'm sure they're from the devil. This is the key verse to go to. Are they doing what is right? Are they loving their brothers? Of course, they're from the devil. What is God thinking? But no, he's not talking about our children. He's talking about us. He's talking about us. Are we always doing what is right in his eyes? Are we always loving our brothers? I mean, we can all pretend. It's easy to come here on Sundays and play the game. We put on our masks and all life's all rosy. We're on top of everything. We can do that. I won't tell if you won't. Or would you expect God to say something more like, you can be in the family, you can be one of my children with all the blessings that come with it, if, if you are good, if you're loving your brother, if you've got a bit of religion, if you're this person or that person. If's a big question, but he doesn't do that either. Because God is God, he gives out the special the spiritual blessings the spiritual blessings are not a gift from god because you deserve it that's a big thing we deserve to be here we deserve to be in god's love for whatever reason but it's not he hasn't done it because we deserve it but because god is god and he wants you to see how amazing he is he wants you to be still and watch him watch him do all this work he's not going to share the glory with you or anyone he's he does it He chose you before creation. You know, before your parents even named you, God had put your name in the book of life. He knew what you were going to be like. And even though he knew what you were going to be like, that we're going to be selfish and self-centred, we're going to be sinners, he still predestines us. He still chooses us to be one of the family. He does that. Have you ever thought what it's going to be like in heaven? And the question, will you fit in? Because everybody in heaven's going to be all nice and perfect and loving. But I know my heart, I'm going to be hanging out with the guys in the corner, you know, just thinking the wrong things. But God says, no, there's no regrets in inviting you to heaven. There's no regrets. 
See, he also says, it's in Christ, I'm going to do it. It's not about me. It's all about what Christ has done. Uh, He loved, he predestined us, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ. It's all about Christ, not about me, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace. He wants all the glory. He wants the praise because he's doing it all, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves, again, through Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with his riches of God's grace. That he does it. That he even sends his son Jesus to do it. I'm not going to fit it in if, fit in if it's me, but if Jesus changes me, that's my only hope. This idea of redemption... Uh, is it not, not a word that we use a lot today, but it's the idea of going and getting something back. And it's usually getting something back at some sort of cost. And it's talking about what God did, the Father did, in sending his son Jesus to earth to be able to bring us home, to bring us home, to be a part of the family. Jesus told a number of stories to help us understand what that looks like. And one of the stories he told uh, is the parable of the lost son. Uh, But he's talking to Jews and Gentiles, talking about even God has love and compassion for the Gentiles, for the real rebels, as well as the Jews, wanting them all to come home to him. But if if we change the characters a little bit, I think Jesus would tell the story a little bit different to us today. I've uh, mentioned this story once before, but I still think it's it's powerfully what's going on here, that there is a father in the story. (coughs) The father God is the father. He has two sons. One, his eldest son, his perfect righteous son, which is Jesus. And the other son, his second son, the youngest son, is us. And like he told the story of the two sons, uh, the younger son uh, says, I don't like living under these rules. I don't like living in this household. I want to live life on my own way, make my own choices. So he goes to his dad and says, I want my inheritance now. Basically saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you are out of my life. You're not my dad anymore. Give me what's coming to me so I can make my own choices. Which the dad does. And the son then goes off to a foreign town, sees the bright lights, and lives life's own way. Now with his own money and his own choices, I can make my own friends, get my own jobs, spend my money my own way. I can live life all about me and, and just live it up. I'm not thinking about my dad anymore. He's going, he's long gone, he's dead to me. But I'm here with my mates. I'm here living it up. And I'm here enjoying life. Because the Father longs for us to come home. He still loves us. And he still wants us to be home with him. So he says to his elder son, his good, perfect and righteous son, Jesus, I want you to go to that foreign town. I want you to go... And bring them home to me. Bring them back. But I can guess what he's been up to. I know what he's done. So I know by going for you to bring him back to me, it's going to cost you your life. To pull him out of that town, out of that state, so he can be back in my arms, it's going to cost you your life if you go. Jesus says, I'm off. Goes to the foreign town finds where we are. As he comes into this earth, he is rejected because he's living for his father, not the way everybody else is living. He's rejected. He's punished. They kill him on a cross. That's us. That's our team. We kill him on the cross because we don't like his message. But it's a message to come home. 
And if we listen to the message and we come home, what sort of welcome are we going to get? If you lift your act, if you be more religious, if you do more stuff around the house, no. How does Jesus tell the story uh, for the youngest son to come home? The father runs out. He runs out and welcomes him down the road. He hugs him. He kisses him. Men kissing, yes. The father kisses the son, welcomes him. Welcome home. He doesn't even let the son apologize for what he's done. He says, welcome home. Welcome to be part of the family. If you remember the story, he gives him a ring, gives him a robe, puts sandals on his feet. They're all things to do with, you're a member of the family. Members of the household had the family signet ring. They had the robes. They had the shoes. Servants had none of those things. He's not a servant. He's coming home as the son, as the lost son. That's what Jesus does for us. We're rebels. We've run. We've turned our back on God, but yet Jesus comes and finds us, sorts us out, seeks us out and takes a punishment that we deserved. We'd said no to life and we're heading straight for death. Jesus says, I'm going to take that death for you so you can come home and find life. That's what he's done. It's a quick word there. In him we were redeemed, but that's the story. God sought us out chose us and brought us home with Jesus paying the price. See, why would God the Father send his son to be shamed and killed on a cross for you? I wonder that all the time. Am I really worth it? No, but it's not about me. Is it about him showing his love, showing his grace, showing his compassion? It's all about him. It's all about him. That's why he can choose me before the creation of the world, knowing that I'll be rotten to the core. But it's not about me. It's about him and his love because he wants us to be home. He wants us to be home by his side for us to be still. Don't do anything. Don't Don't try and be religious. Don't try and fit in or try and be the good person just pretending or playing the game. Trust him. Trust in Jesus. And he will bring you home. So it's not because we deserve it. It's purely because of grace. A free gift. He does it all. And this is where we be amazed, we be still, and we belong. See, everyone in heaven is going to have this same experience of grace. You know, who deserves to be there the most? We could have those arguments in heaven. But it's by grace that things that's in common for us all. Because none of us deserve to be there. It's all because of God. See, I wonder when we go through the gates of heaven that the Father God is going to be there with his arms open, welcoming us home, good and faithful servant, welcoming us home as a hero. Even though we've done the wrong things, but through Christ, he sees us as holy and blameless. He sees us as the hero and welcomes us home. And he calls us to belong. And we go, I don't know how I got here. And he says, I know exactly how you got here. I had the plan all mapped out. There's no coincidence in this world. There's no chance in life. He says, I had it all mapped out. I knew you were coming home because I sent this person into your life. I sent that set of circumstances. I know it was hard at your time, but I had to get your attention. I did this and that. I pointed you to this point in time. There's no coincidence that you were born into this time in history, into this place, into the family that you're in. In fact, there's no coincidence that you're in here today. God knew that. God knew that. 
says, I had to get your attention. I had you to sit down and hear what I've got to say. So I brought you here. See, is God calling you home? Has God been seeking you and pursuing you? If you're here, I think he has. But are we going to listen to him to see his amazing grace that it's not because of me and my goodness, it's not because I'll try harder, it's not because I've done anything magic or religious, it's because of his grace. And when we turn to that and cling to that, we are welcomed home, welcomed home as his children. So we can stop trying to be good enough and stop pretending, but we can be still, look to him and cling to his grace. Then we look to the cross and know that's why a God, uh, that's how God poured out his love for me. That's how he brought me home, for sending his son to seek me out to where I am. So be still, be amazed and belong to his family. Let's pray. Dear Father, we just thank you for your amazing love. Just when we think we've got our head around what grace is and what it means, it just blows us away again. But Lord, we just thank you that you're a God of compassion, not a God that talks the talk, but you do something about it. How you sent your son to die the death I deserve, to die the death we all deserve, so we can come home, so you can see us now as holy and blameless. So you can welcome us as your children and hold us close. That you give us this, your Holy Spirit as a sign of the inheritance that we will receive. Lord, we thank you for being an amazing God, for your amazing love, for your amazing compassion, and amazing grace. Amen.